Our special guest spent many, many years in Lebanon as a missionary. This is our brother David King and his wife Maxine. For about 20 years of their ministry, they were in Lebanon, and a part of that time was it 12 years that you were there where there was a civil war. As I was coming in today, I thought, a lot of us think we got problems. But this is a man who actually had problems and was there as Jesus solved them because they came through it. So without any further ado, brother, please come forth and and, uh, share your story with us. Thank you very much. It's a great joy and a privilege to be here. We were appointed by the Southern Baptist International Mission Board, used to call it the Foreign Mission Board, in 1959, had six weeks of orientation, and then went to Lebanon to serve for 30 years. And the first 15 years were wonderful. It was a peaceful, quiet, beautiful country. We went up to the cedars of Lebanon for picnics often. Uh, We could go snow skiing in the morning and sea skiing in the afternoon, water skiing in the afternoon in the Mediterranean Sea. Beautiful place. But there were rumblings under the surface. And in 1975... On Maxine's birthday, April 18th, a bus full of people was shot up and many of them were killed, and that was the beginning of 12 years of unrest. And then after we left and went to the island of Cyprus for two years with our Baptist seminary, um, we came back to the States, but the war kept going for another three years. It lasted 15 years. But during those days, we turned almost automatically to Psalm 91. Our Bibles almost automatically opened to Psalm 91, which says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. They say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. Amen. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of the night, including the Katusha rockets, or the arrow that flies by day, the machine gun bullets, Maxine was working out in the garden one day, and something whizzed right by her ear. A bullet had ricocheted off of a nearby rock. Another time, she was working in the garden and heard a click. She looked up and stared right down the barrel of a rifle. Palestinian, a Lebanese soldier asked, do you have any Palestinians here? She said, no. Come and look if you want to. And he said, never mind, and he clicked it off, the safety, and then she went on about her business, and he went on about his. Nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 
10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked, and it will so. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High God your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's the verse that the devil used in trying to tempt Jesus to jump off the temple. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Verse 14, because they love me, says the Lord, I will rescue them. I will protect them, for they acknowledge my name. They will call on me, and I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will deliver them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. What a promise. What a promise. The Lord has carried my wife through 92 years and me through 91. Now we're still kicking. Praise the Lord. It's all by His grace. It was early in the Lebanese Civil War. We were about two-thirds of the way across the valley in between the Lebanon and the anti-Lebanon mountains still about 30 miles east of Beirut and our home, when we came to a barricade across the road. A young man dressed in militia fatigues carrying an AK-47 stopped us and looked into the car. His eyes flicked from one thing to another like the tongue of a snake tasting the air. He saw all our clothes and the sacks of sugar and flour and other provisions in the car, plus my wife and two children with me. He looked carefully at me and my family. His eyes grew hard and narrowed to slits. It seemed most likely that he would order us out of the car and take it and all of its contents as spoils of war and then do whatever he wanted to with us. It was time to pray very specifically, and pray we did, silently, of course. But the question was, what would the Lord allow to happen to us, we wondered. But let me go back to the beginning of the story. In the fall of 1975, two ladies from the U.S. had come to Lebanon to help us update the library of the Baptist Seminary with our both of us taught, and to train my wife to become the librarian. The seminary is situated in the foothills of the Lebanon Mountains overlooking the city of Beirut and the Mediterranean Sea. One of the ladies was a retired professional librarian. The other was her retired teacher sister. For about two and a half months, everything went fairly smoothly, but in December, the fighting erupted again in Beirut. The airport was closed, couldn't get to it. Leaving by sea was also impossible because we couldn't get to the port, even though we could see it a few miles down the hill. 
And these ladies were not used to the noise of battle. Uh, We were still getting acquainted with it. Shells began exploding up in the mountain behind us and then between us and the city and then in the city as well. Each day it seemed as though a noose was tightening around our necks and around us and around the area where we lived. The areas in which it was safe to drive became smaller and smaller. These two ladies were not sleeping well at night when the noise was at its worst. One of them had high blood pressure, and as the days went by, it rose perilously. Her face became permanently flushed. It was obvious to all of us that she especially and her sister needed to get out. So one day she asked if there was any way that they could leave because the port was closed, the airport was closed. What could we do? Well, we said, yes, we can take you through the Syrian army lines and over the mountains across the Bekaa Valley and into Syria to Damascus and then down to Jordan. Our missionaries there will arrange for you to fly back to the States. The ladies agreed, and the following Saturday, now Maxine wouldn't let me take them by myself. She said, no, 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 (laughs) we're going with you, we being herself and our two younger children. So Saturday we loaded the Peugeot station wagon with their suitcases and our clothes and our children and our little white dog, Frosty, in his wire mesh cage in the back of the car. Our seminary friends and colleagues promised to pray for our safety as we went. So we prayed and we climbed the mountain and reached the area controlled by the Syrian army. As we approached the first checkpoint, we saw that the soldiers were building a fire on a 55-gallon iron drum because it had recently turned cold and snowed. We felt fell silent as we wondered what they might try to do with a carload of Americans traveling through their territory. As we slowed down, we became silent as we prayed for God's protection and guidance. In fact, as we drew alongside them, they remained intent on fixing their fire and never did look up or even notice as we went past them. Praise the Lord. We continued on up the winding road with thanksgiving in our hearts. We went over the crest of the Lebanon range and descended into the Bekaa Valley where the Lebanese army was in control. They stopped us and asked to see our identification and then waved us through. As we crossed the Bekaa Valley, we passed through territory controlled by a radical leftist militia, but no one stopped us, so we drove on across the fertile fields and vineyards of the Bukah, now lightly covered with snow. 
We climbed the anti-Lebanon range, which was the border with Syria, and came to the two Lebanese checkpoints and then two Syrian checkpoints and went through without any unusual problems. It took normally two hours to get through, one hour for the Lebanese side and one hour for the Syrian side for all the paperwork. First was the paperwork for the people, second was the paperwork for the car. From there on, the trip was much more relaxing. We were out of danger and laughed and talked freely, arriving in Amman, Jordan, about nightfall. The next day, which was Sunday, but open business day, because in Muslim lands, Friday is the holy day, if they rest at all, and in many cases they do not rest at all, they carry on business until it's time for the prayers. And then they quit, and some go to the mosque, and some do not. But business was open, and so we were able to hand off the two ladies and our, to our missionary friends and colleagues in Amman, and they arranged for the ladies to get on the last plane out for the week. And there were only two seats left on it, and the Lord arranged that. And we went uh, shopping for supplies to take back to Lebanon. Among those things we were asked to bring back was a large amount of Lebanese money, about $10,000 worth of Lebanese money. And we had to pick that up in the downtown financial area uh, at the bank. The banks in Lebanon had been closed for weeks. The seminary employees had not been paid, and funds were needed for buying food for the staff and the students. We bought a large bag of rice and one just like it of sugar and one of flour, along with several smaller bags of beans and pasta and other non-perishable and canned foods. We also got the cash and put it in a large flat envelope, which we hid under the metal floor of Frosty's cage between the metal floor and the wire mesh that was around it. So if anybody picked up his cage, it would not be obvious that there was anything in there. That was Maxine's good idea. Monday morning, we started back to Lebanon in spite of the protests of our missionary colleagues in Jordan who urged us to stay with them a few days for R&R. &R. However, we felt that we needed to get the supplies and especially the cash back to the people in Lebanon as soon as possible. Our colleagues promised to pray for us as we went on our way. Everything went well as we drove north from Amman along the plateau of Bashan in Syria where Moses had conquered Og hundreds of years before. We drove very carefully through the villages so as not to hit the many donkeys and children who thronged the roadway. Boy, if we had hit either a donkey or a child, we'd have been there for a week if we got out at all. They thronged the roadway beside the basalt stone houses typical of the area. 
We had no trouble finding our way through Damascus. Just wished we had time to stop and shop in one of our very favorite places to go shopping. Wouldn't be so much fun today. After climbing the anti-Lebanon range, which forms the border between Syria and Lebanon and passing through the four checkpoints at the border, we began to wonder what was ahead of us in the Bekaa Valley and up the Lebanon range. We listened to the radio and could get no clear report of what was happening. When we came to a point where we could look out over the valley, about 10 miles wide, we pulled off to the side of the road and opened the windows and listened for the sounds of gunfire. We heard none. But one thing troubled us. There was not one single car on the road going across the valley. Now, you may have never been in a war, but I'm telling you, if there's a road with no cars on it, you know there's trouble somewhere. So, we wondered what that meant. We discussed what to do and decided that as long as there was no shooting, we would go as far as we could go and hope that God would get us through safely. As we started to leave and get back on the road, Jeannie, at that time about 10 years old, our little daughter said, Daddy, can we sing Safe Am I before we go? We said, Sure, Jeannie. So we sang. Safe am I, safe am I, in the hollow of his hand. Sheltered o'er, sheltered o'er, in his love forevermore. No ill can harm me, no foe alarm me, for he keeps both day and night. Safe am I, safe am I, in the hollow of his hand. Sorry, the voice ain't what it used to be. In fact, I have to apologize for having to read this. But my memory has to be, you know, kept in line. And this is the only way I can keep it in line. Some of you will understand in a few years. So then, with that assurance in our hearts and a prayer on our lips... Down we went, and that's when we encountered the young man with the AK-47. What was he going to do with us? Now, I'm going to digress a little bit and preach a bit and teach a little bit about prayer, and I hope you won't mind, but I'm going to relate it to this story. Prayer releases God's power to change things and to change circumstances and to change people. Prayer releases God's power. If I ever write a book, that'll be the title. But before we discuss prayer and the release of God's power and how God answered our prayers in this situation we've described, it to be helpful to consider some of the common misconceptions people have about prayer. One, 
that it's just wish thinking. Prayer is really wish thinking in a way. That is, when we pray, we really are wishing hard for something to happen, for the Lord to do something and for the situation to change. They believe the words of the little song, if you wish long enough, wish strong enough, you will come to know wishing will make it so. That's Jiminy Cricket's little song. Well, of course, when we pray, we do express strong wish or desire for what we're praying for, but prayer is so much more than a simple wish. It is a desire for God to arrange or rearrange the circumstances of our lives or of someone else's life so that the results will be what we long for and hopefully for the good or the better or the best for whomever we're praying for. In our case, we were not wishing for the young man to let us go without harming us. We were asking God to intervene on our behalf and to influence his heart and mind so that he will not do the harm that he might well have done to us. Some people think that prayer is auto-suggestion. That is, that when we pray, we suggest to ourselves what we think ought to happen. We visualize the end result of our prayer, and then as we pray, we realize that there are some things that we can do to make our desires come true. So, we suggest to ourselves ways to make it happen. Sometimes this is true, especially if we believe that God expects us to do whatever we can to answer our own prayers. We speak of putting feet to our prayers, by which we usually mean that we must exert all the effort of which we are capable to make our prayers come true. However, in our desperation, there really was nothing we could do to change the circumstances around us, neither the war, nor the battle, nor the checkpoint, nor the attitudes of the people who were manning that checkpoint. What we needed was not auto-suggestion to make us effective negotiators to get us through the checkpoint without harm, but we needed the intervention of a God of love who controls all those circumstances and the people involved. Psycho-cybernetics. Some people think that prayer is just programming our minds, that's what psycho-cybernetics is, to think in a specific way to get the results we desire. According to psycho-cybernetics, if you are incarcerated, for example, and you think every day about your golf game and you visualize every shot and where it lands and where you're going to make the next shot, you'll do better when you get out than you were when you went in. And if you play baseball and you visualize every pitch and where you're going to hit it and what the result is going to be, you can get out better off than you were when you went in. You Even during the Olympics, you watch the Olympics and you see runners or you see pole vaulters or jumpers. Uh, take a moment to just quietly stand there while they mentally go over the jump that they're going to make or whatever the event may be 
as they work out in their minds exactly what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. That's psychocybernetics. Now, there may be an element of this in our prayers, but what we needed in Lebanon was not a way to program our minds, but a way to influence someone else's mind. And that was beyond us. We needed God to affect the mind of that young man holding us at gunpoint and to affect his release of our car and its contents, including us. Some suggest that prayer is for the benefit of the prayer only. Some people say it's only a spiritual exercise for the benefit of the one who is praying. It is good for us to pray because it brings us closer to God and improves our spiritual lives and enables us to overcome temptation and to grow into better people and to recognize our potential. It goes along with the power of positive thinking. All of this is true, of course, but prayer is much more than self-improvement by the power of positive thinking. Prayer releases the power of God to affect people and circumstances in our world in ways which would not be possible if we had not prayed. In our case, we needed God's power to be released to get us safely back home in spite of the risks and dangers. For some people... Prayer is involvement in the spirit world in a general kind of way. For some people, prayer seems to be the positive side of involvement in the spirit world. We are more familiar with the negative side, black magic and voodooism and spiritism and the occult. For them, prayer is white magic or the ability to communicate with the spirits of good people, good spirits for our own personal advantage and benefit. It has nothing to do with God, but only with spiritual forces, and in New Age terminology, the force. May the force be with you. There's no God in that. It's just a spiritual exercise. But in our case, what we needed was not some mysterious force that could bend spoons or boost us over obstacles, but a spiritual force which could overrule all the other forces and conditions that we faced in order to get us home safely. We call this ultimate spiritual force God. But he is so much more than just a force. He is our creator. He is our savior. He is personal, revealing himself to people and through events in history to us. Some people say prayer is talking with God. Well, yes, it is true that prayer is talking with God, but it's much, much more than a mental exercise. A person may talk with God as a friend about any subject at all, whatever concerns us. But that does not necessarily release God's power to work in any given situation in our world. We did not need to explain to God the details of our circumstances. He knew all about them. What we needed was for God to do something 
on our behalf and to get us back home safely. Some people think mental telepathy is a kind of prayer or that prayer is a kind of mental telepathy. There are those who feel that our prayers go up to God much as a radio beam goes up to a satellite and then back down to the mind of the person for whom we are praying. In this way, God is a kind of passive reflector of our own mental powers which influence others by concentrations of mental energy. But in our need, no amount of human mental energy was likely to change the circumstances or the likelihood that the young man with the gun was going to take us in, confiscate all our possessions for his own purposes, and mistreat us in any way his sadistic mind might wish. What we needed was the release of God's power to change his mind and to influence him to release us and let us continue on our way home. So, the young man asked for our identity cards and looked at them for a long moment. And just as he was about to speak, an older man in civilian clothes not dressed in the militia uniform, who was sitting on the curb talking with a friend, looked up and saw us. He came walking over to the car, and the younger man made room for him to look inside. Amazingly, in perfect English, he asked, Are you Americans? We said, yes, sir. He turned to the young man and said, let these people go. Not in English, in Arabic. Oh, boy. The young man didn't like it. He shot him a dirty look, but then he waved us through. Thank you, Lord. Obviously, the older man outranked him. We felt sure that people both in Jordan and at the Baptist Seminary were praying for us right then. We lost no time moving on. As we started up the mountain, we came to a Lebanese army checkpoint. We stopped and presented our ID cards. The soldier walked around the car noting what was inside. He opened the back and started to tease Frosty, who said, and he quick closed the back of the car and waved us on through. How could that soldier know that $10,000 worth of Lebanese money was under that dog? Once again, we had to go through the Syrian army checkpoint that we had come out past when they were building a fire in the 50-gallon drum. Uh, but they didn't stop us. Again, they did not pay attention to us. This time, finally, we were allowed to continue once our passports and ID cards had been checked and they learned that we lived in the village about a mile below them. We arrived at the seminary tired but happy just about sundown. When we drove in, people came running. 
from all directions. I kid you not. They were running to come see. How did you get here, they asked. We came across the Bacal Valley. They said, no, surely you could not have come that way. The radio here has been reporting a big battle in the Bacal Valley all day long. We thought you would have to wait at least until tomorrow to come back. When we assured them that we had neither seen nor heard any gunshots, they couldn't believe it. One neighbor walked away, shaking his head, raising his hands to heaven, saying, Subhanallah, praise be to God. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. You couldn't have gotten here unless God had intervened. He didn't know the whole story, but we sure agreed with him. While it's impossible to prove that prayer had anything to do with our safe return to the seminary, the unusual circumstances associated with this trip are enough to suggest, at least, that supernatural power was at work on our behalf. If not, why was it that the Syrian soldiers never looked at us as we passed them on the way up the mountain? Why did not we hear or see any signs of battle when we came back. When observers had reported heavy fighting in the very area we crossed, why did the older man just happen to be sitting there on the curb? When the young man with the gun stopped us, now why did he have such a good attitude toward Americans? We've often wondered about that. Maybe he had been to college here in the States because he spoke English with an American accent. I think he had been here in the States. And his attitude was very favorable in an area that was known for its anti-Americanism. How come the Lebanese soldier did not search our car for money or other valuables which he might have taken from us? Someone was watching out for us and prayer is what made his presence real and his influence on those who might have harmed us so strong that they did things they would not normally do. They released us to go home and to take with us all that we were bringing for the people of the seminary. God was faithful. He answered the prayers of his people and released his power to accomplish his purpose and to advance his kingdom. May it be so with each of us today. Lord, we are living in the midst of a world in need of Jesus. And Lord, we all together pray that you would so mold our hearts and fill us with your spirit that we talk about Jesus more and more and that we share our faith and the joy of our salvation with everybody we meet. Lord, 
The joy of the Lord is our strength. Grant that we may spread it as soon as possible in Jesus' name. Bless these folks as they go to their homes. In Jesus' name, amen.